sort of a overtly taught principle. It's more of an, ob- an observation and then a, a briefly stated explicit version of this principle that is there in the Gospel of John. But what I want to suggest to you is that what I want to share with you this morning is, is really it's through the whole book. It's not that there's just sort of one passage that teaches this one concept. It's more woven into every, every story, every life, every situation, every teaching. The, the implication not only is there just in the Gospel of John. In fact, once, once you flip from John and you start into the rest of the New Testament, this, this idea just, it just grows and expands. And the idea is quite simple. And here it is. If you're going to follow Jesus, he will change you. And that's where I want to end as we think through discipleship. So we've spent kind of the fall and then just the early part of this new year in the Gospel of John asking a simple question. What does it look like according to John's Gospel, according to God's Word, to be a follower of Jesus? And we've looked at a variety of topics and I just wanted to end here with which I think is actually the most fundamental and basic thought in this whole idea of discipleship. In fact, I think if we went back 2,000 years ago and sat the disciples down, that original group of 12 who gathered around Jesus and said, you know, explain to us discipleship, they would have landed on that as one of the the premier thoughts. That's just what it meant 2,000 years ago. If you picked a teacher, a rabbi, and said, I will be a disciple of that teacher, you were not doing that just to gain information as though they had knowledge and you were trying to learn that knowledge from them, you are actually seeking to imitate their lives. You're essentially saying, I don't want to be like what I am. I want to be like what you are. In fact, if you look at 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul says this essential thing to Timothy when he writes to him. He says this, you, however, have followed my teaching. That's a good start. In other words, I had information. I gave it to you. You followed it. But that's not where Paul stops. Listen to where he goes. You have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You hear what he's getting at? In other words, Timothy, when you were discipled by me, it was all in. It was you making a commitment to be like me, just as I have made a commitment to be like Christ. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have made an admission or a statement that you want to be different than what you are. In fact, it's actually kind of a wonderfully liberating thing to realize that we as followers of Jesus sitting in a room like this, part of a church like this, have all in essence said, who I am needs to change. Right? We should, it should just be such a wonderful thing, this church full of people who have humbled themselves to say, I need to be different. And I have chosen to follow Jesus so that I would be different. That's what discipleship means. Now, as I said, this comes from an observation and then an explicit principle and then the rest of the New Testament. So the observation would just be picking one story and showing you how this plays out in the gospel. So I picked the story of Peter near the end of the gospel of John, uh, picking up in chapter 18, which we would know as, in part, the story of Peter's betrayal of Jesus. Fascinating. Read it sometime. Have you, have you ever actually really read it? Not just assumed you know it. Because we, we know the story is something like this, that Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to my death. And Peter says, I will never leave you. Right? This is how the story goes. I'm in. 
Even if everyone else abandons you, not me, I'll even go to my death. And Jesus says, no, Peter, actually before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But have you ever thought of what the denial looked like? Because John actually records it in very explicit detail. They arrest Jesus. They put him on trial. You remember what the charges are? Why he's on trial? He is to answer for two things. His disciples first and his teaching second. And Jesus responds to that. He says, what I taught, I taught openly. It wasn't hidden. But if you really want to know, just go ask my followers. My disciples, they'll tell you. And immediately after that, they go to Peter and they say, you're one of them, aren't you? You get the context? <laughs> Jesus, he knows full well he's going to die. But through this process, throws himself on his disciples. Right? He has to answer for his disciples and his teaching. And he says, just ask my disciples, they'll tell you. And Peter is the one they go to. And what is his answer? Is, I don't even know him. That's the depth of the denial. It's not just a random, you know, they're walking along and someone picks Peter out at random. It's like, hey, do you know him? It's like, nope, don't know him. And if it's not bad enough, someone says, actually, no, we know you know him. We saw you with him in the garden. He's like, nope, it was not me. All based on this trial where Jesus says, you know what? If you need answers, go ask my disciples. Right? It's like pill vouch for me. That's the depth of denial. Okay, so imagine that. There's Peter at that moment. He's pretty much given up. Peter actually goes back to fishing, which is where he started out, until something begins to change in Peter. And by Acts chapter 4, we get this incredible scene. It's less than two months from his betrayal of Jesus. Less than two months have gone on, and he is out there on the street in front of the same religious leaders preaching about who Jesus is, that he's died on a cross, that they have killed him, and Jesus has risen again to life, and that if they just put their faith in him, they could be saved too. And the religious leaders take Peter and some of the others aside and say, you have to stop. And Peter responds. The response is something like this. It's like, whether I should obey God or men, <laughs> that's the choice. I know what I'm going to do. He says, I must, I must tell you what I've seen and heard. Keep that little response in mind. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. But do you, you see just the, the raw transformation in just one person because he was with Jesus? And I would suggest to you that that same transformation happens over and over and over again through the Gospels. People come alongside Jesus and they are transformed. And that's what it means to sign on to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A commitment to saying, I'm going to let him change my life. In fact, not just let him, I need him to change my life. Now the, the principle is explicitly stated, I would say, in John chapter 17, verse 17 with this passage we were in last week, where Jesus puts it this way. He says, <clears throat> Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He repeats it in verse 19 again, where he says, That they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, we ought to just wrestle for a brief minute with a couple big theological terms. Because what does it mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Sanctify them in truth. We don't use that word very often anymore. 
but it's in the Bible, and I'll give you just two definitions, and then we're going to unpack a passage in Romans that I think will help us understand it. The two words I think we need to know before we dive in here are justification and sanctification. I had someone after second service is like, wow, you, you attempt to do a lot in one service. So I apologize if we're just going to kind of drink from the fire hose for a minute, but we got to, to get the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Justification is the act of God by which he declares us to be righteous or perfect, sometimes scripture would actually say. It's a legal standing before God owing to a spiritual union with Jesus by faith, not something we earn or do. It's something that we receive as a gift by faith. In other words, me standing on my, on my own before God, I am guilty. I'm a sinner, guilty of sin, deserving of death and eternal separation from God. And there's no amount of good works or deeds I can do to tip the scale in my favor before God. That's Scripture's estimation of me. You go read Scripture to find out its estimation of you. And yet, God says, he does an incredibly merciful thing in sending his one and only son to die on a cross in my place. And he takes my sin upon himself, dies for it, so that God can look upon me and declare a guilty man, innocent. Now, positionally, that's how we sin. When God looks at you, if you actually stood before him in a court of justice and you trust Jesus, his declaration is innocent. You are free. In fact, that word perfect actually does show up in Scripture. Because he's looking at you through the lens of his perfectly righteous son. That's what justification is, okay? Sanctification is the act of God by which he, through his spirit and word, conforms us into the image of his son. There's, there's a difference there. One is you are declared fully innocent. The other is a recognition that although I'm declared fully innocent, there are some... Uh, don't we like to kind of nuance it and give ourselves sort of make it sound nice? Like we might say, it's like, there's some rough edges still. Like, what do I mean by that? It's like, there's a mess of sin. I'd rather you not know. God knows, and he's working on. That's what we mean by that. That's sanctification. And, and God is at work to deal with that sin, to, to cause me to become more and more obedient and more and more conformed into the image of his son, more and more like Jesus. Now, you, you see these two things come together in a number of places, like Hebrews 10, 14 is a fascinating example where it says, by a single offering... Christ has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Or actually, some translations say Christ, by a single offering, meaning his death on the cross, has perfected, meaning it's done and accomplished, those who are being perfected. It's like, how can I have been and yet still need to be? That's these two incredible concepts. On the one hand, fully forgiven and fully made perfect but needing still the Spirit of God to work to change me, okay? So that's, if you get those two concepts, then where we go here in Romans 15 will make a lot more sense. Because in Romans 15, Paul actually, he's going to give us a really helpful definition of what he understands sanctification to be. <clears throat> he doesn't do it overtly. He's actually describing his understanding of what his whole ministry was about. Uh, it's tucked there in chapter 15 of Romans, verse 14 to 21. Romans 15, 14 to 21. <clears throat> and he says, <clears throat> in verse 15, here's what he says. 
On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. To be a minister of Jesus Christ. So this is, this is basically Paul's job description. To be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gospels in the priestly service of the Gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now it's an odd way for Paul to describe his job. He kind of envisions it through the lens of like an Old Testament priest. And he says, if we were to think in that way, then he says, my job as a priest is to bring an offering to God. And what's my offering? My offering is going to be the Gentiles who I bring, who I've preached the gospel to, who have trusted Jesus, and they've been sanctified. Gets that last word? Very, very important. Paul's not just saying my goal is to bring a whole bunch of converts to God. He says, I want to bring people who have known Jesus and whose lives have been sanctified. I want to bring them to God. Now, the reason it's important is because a couple verses later, he, he reiterates his job description. He gives it to us one more time, but he changes the wording ever so slightly. Same, same description, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And if you put those two verses together, you get Paul saying, I want you to understand what sanctification is. It's people becoming obedient to the gospel of Christ. That's, that's the essence of sanctification. Now, in case you're kind of going, well, I'm not fully convinced, go read sometime in Romans chapter 6, 17 to 19. He'd do the same thing. It, it almost seems like in Paul's mind, the words sanctification and obedience are interchangeable. They get to the same idea. We will be changed. We are not yet fully obedient to what we need to be, and God's work in us is to make us so. And make sure when you think that through, you use the broadest definition of, of what sin and faith are, because Paul does. Everything that's not of faith is sin. That's Paul's definition of sin. So he wants people who are fully trusting in Jesus and have let the Spirit of God transform their lives. That's, that's Paul's understanding of what sanctification means. Now, we could look in a whole bunch of other places find the essential same kind of definition. But I want to just show you a few places that suggest that, that we ought to anticipate as followers of Jesus that our lives will be changed. Well, let's just have a quick, quick look. Um, not all of them, but just kind of a sampling. If you go back to the beginning of the Gospels, Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4, they, they actually tell the exact same story of the very first disciples. And so there's these group of guys, they're at their fishing boats, right? They're all there, they're gathered. And Jesus comes along and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's a fast, I love that statement. Isn't that great? He says, your job is to follow me. But hear what he says my job is? I will make you fishers of men. If you follow me, I'm going to change you. That's what he's saying. Now, it's in one particular area, one of many areas that I think we ought to anticipate change happening. But it's pretty clear. You follow, I will make. John chapter 15 is a similar kind of idea. We looked at that one in the fall. This abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. In other words, as you abide in me, which we discovered in chapter 15, is, is essential for discipleship. Like, you can't say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I just don't abide in him. <laughs> that category doesn't exist. I'm a follower of Jesus, that means I do abide in him, and as I abide in him, I will bear much fruit, because he's going to be at work. 
Okay, when we leave the Gospels and go to the rest of the New Testament, we find things like 2 Corinthians 3.18. A classic for some of you who have thought through this stuff. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with an ever-increasing glory. Did you catch what he's saying? We all. All who, Paul? All of us who are followers of Jesus. We see His glory and we are transformed. It's fundamental to what discipleship is all about. Now, I ran out of time in first service, so I was scribbling notes as we were singing, trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, so we're just going to kind of cut a section, and we're going to kind of move on so that we don't run out of time here. And I want to wrestle for a few minutes with the, with the really, I think, what is the essential question is, how? I'm going to assume that we want this. I, I hope when I say this, it doesn't land in your thoughts as, like, as a bad news thing, as a guilt-producing. It's like, okay, here we go. The preacher's at it again. We're sitting here. He's telling us not good enough, and we need to change, and I already know I'm not good enough. There's all these issues. I know. I've got them, and now I'm like beaten up again. It's like, go home. Be better. Like, I hope that's not what it sounds like. When I hear this now, I think to myself, this is such good news. I know me. I know I still need to change. The most discouraging, disheartening news in the world could be that there's no means for that. The news that there is a possibility that Scripture is going to actually outline how is the most encouraging thing I could ever come across. Because I know me. There's, there's been growth. Like, in case you're all looking, it's like, oh, man, he's really in trouble. There's been growth. Like, I can see it, so I believe this to be true, but I know there's still so much. And when I read that it's possible, I don't read it, it's like, oh, boy, that's a guilt-producing thing. I read this as a hope-producing thing. So I hope you can join me in that. And I just want to ask this question, how? How does sanctification come about? Now, again, there's a whole bunch of passages we could go to here. Uh, we're going to just kind of pick and, and choose a few. But I want to just start with just... A fundamental observation, I'll take it from two passages. Again, we could take it from lots. The first is 1 John 3, 2, which says, Beloved, we are God's children now because you're forgiven, right? Declared innocent. You're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, I'm going to be different one day. When, John? This is the same John writing an, another letter. We know that when he appears, we will be like him why? Because we will see him as he is. You hear what John's suggesting? If you could just see Jesus as he is, the very act of seeing him would transform you. And one day you will, and one day you will be. That's John's hope. But Paul goes there as well. In fact, we read the verse already, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into that image. And we're going to get a little bit later at looking at that exact passage in more in depth. From one degree of glory to another. In fact, so Paul's saying there's just this gradual transformation as we see the image of the Lord. So, here's the observation. The hindrance to us being transformed is not seeing the Lord. The reason you're not changed, the reason I'm not changed is because I haven't fully seen him yet. Now, you go back and read the Gospels, and you're going to start to see why that's really, really important. Because a theme comes out in the Gospels so many times about hearing and seeing. Jesus talks about this often, about people who are 
who see but don't see, and they hear but don't hear. It's all wrapped up in the parables over and over and over this conversation goes. Now, what's he talking about? He's really saying that, that you might see with your eyes but not really perceive the spiritual reality of what's going on. The words might go into your ears, but you don't understand the significance of them. And Jesus says, something has to change. A transformation has to change. God has to do a work so that when you see, you really see. And when you hear, you really hear. That's why I think it's so important when you go back to Acts chapter 4, when I made the comment of, like, pay attention to that phrase. What happened in the life of Peter to take him from a man who would so quickly betray Jesus to a man who would seem to be totally prepared to lay down his life? You hear his words? I've got to tell you what I heard and what I saw. He had seen and heard Jesus before. But now he finally really had seen and really had heard. So, the obstacle to this whole thing happening is the fact that we don't see and don't hear. Right? That's the obstacle. One day we will fully, okay, so we're in this in-between time of trying to fit all these pieces together of how does Scripture teach like how does this happen go to second corinthians chapter three with me for a few moments and we're going to see how paul wrestles with this exact question so if you got a bible turn there because i'd much rather you see it in bible terms than just mine i'll try to sort of summarize as we go through now second corinthians three the bigger issue going on in the book of second corinthians is paul's having sort of this wrestling match with a group of teachers who have come along and they're trying to basically outdo paul as a as a law-keeping jew that's, go read chapter 11, Paul makes it quite explicit of what's going on, and he, and so he's having this almost competition with them of who, of who's doing it right, and in chapter 3, he gets right to the heart of the issue, you'll see it there, you look at verse like 3, you'll see he starts to bring it up in these sort of I would say almost sort of veiled references, but here's what he says in verse 3. Um, and you showed that you are a letter from Christ, speaking of the Corinthians, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. He's looking, he's thinking back to Moses and the old covenant and the actual literal tablets and comparing them to what's going on now through the work of the spirit of God. He's saying there's an old covenant and a new covenant, and I want you to know that the new covenant is the superior thing. That's going to be his argument. He'll argue it in three ways. I'll give you the argument, and then I'm going to read the verses so you can watch how he does it. The first is this. The ministry of the Spirit is much more glorious than the ministry of death. That's his term, not mine. He's talking about the two covenants. The ministry of righteousness is much more glorious than the ministry of condemnation, secondly. And thirdly, the permanent ministry is much more glorious than the temporary thing. Okay, let me read you the verses that I think outline that. I'll begin in verse 4. Such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. There it is. The new covenant he wants to talk about. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Hear the argument? He's saying, look, when we look back to the old covenant, this thing had glory. And it brought condemnation and death. But it had glory. You go back to Exodus 34 and you'll see what Paul is referencing. He's talking about the fact when Moses would go to meet with God. That, that all involved this old covenant. Moses literally came away glowing. Remember that story if you grew up in Sunday school? He would go. He'd meet with God. I think Exodus 34, 34 is the one that tells us that when he heard God. He actually, he was like. Filled with glory. And then he would come out and everyone was so terrified. They're like, Moses, you got to put something on. And so he was veiled. What's interesting, I, I love this little note in Exodus 34, maybe 33. Moses actually didn't even realize it. He was unaware. He just met with God, comes out, and then everyone's terrified. It's like he doesn't even understand what's going on until they're like, Moses, you're shining. That's scary. Put on a veil. So every time Moses would go and meet with God and enter the presence of the Lord... He would be filled with this glory, and then he would come away and have to cover it up. That's the old covenant. And Paul's saying, it's glorious, but it's less. Because think of this new covenant. The glory never fades. You see, the glory for Moses, it gradually faded, and then he would go back, and it would kind of like recharge, and then fade and recharge. Paul said, but the, this new thing, there's no fading. It's permanent. And it brings life. And it brings righteousness. Now, this is the argument that he's working through. It's important to understand the argument because the next couple of verses, he's going to sort of appeal back to what should be in our minds as we think through this whole argument, okay? Uh, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You can wrestle with that statement sometime. That's pretty huge. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. So now Paul's like taking these same images and these same words, and, and imagining now it's like for the Jews, the veil is over them, and it's not allowing them to see Christ. Here he's kind of just using these ideas and these images, and he's now picturing a group of people. There's a veil. They can't see through it to see the glory of Jesus Christ. So they're missing it. So he goes on. Um, uh, verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Okay, what's he getting at? Now he's used a very odd expression. He's talked about the fact that the Spirit is the Lord which might, and any of you kind of go, huh, that seems, usually when Paul's talking about the Lord, he's talking about Christ. But he's, he's setting this all against the backdrop of Exodus 14, because Exodus 14 teaches us that when Moses went and saw the Lord, that's, that's when the glory happened. And so Paul's just wanting us to think of that picture as he's talking about the fact that when we encounter the Spirit of God who is God, so we encounter God, he does this transforming work in us and allows the veil to be pulled back that we can see a little bit more of the glory of Jesus Christ. And when we do, Paul says, we're transformed. 
we're changed. That's how. That's how it happens. Right? So if you're looking and saying, okay, I know I need to be changed. (laughs) How does Scripture describe this? And that's not the only place where it describes it in those kind of sort of images, that kind of way. But there there it is. And, And did you catch verse 18 of how he describes it? We all with unveiled face, now the veil's gone, we're beholding the glory of, of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's a pretty awesome image, isn't it? We're beholding His glory. Now, there's a word tucked away in there um, that describes the whole process. It, it's transformed. So in English, that's... It, we actually have... We actually have the Greek word pretty much in English. It's called metamorphosis. The definition would be something like, um, oh, where did I, I had it written down here. Um, to change inwardly in fundamental character or condition. That's what the word is. So we see Jesus, the veil's pulled back because God does a work, and we are fundamentally changed inwardly in our character or condition. That's what Paul's talking about. But did you catch this, this one sort of interesting little description that's tucked away in there. Um, let me just make sure I get you the right verse. Um, I think it's in verse 18. Oh, except I'm reading out of translation that dropped the word. All right. There's the word, the word that you want to make sure you get familiar with is one in verse 18 that talks about we behold as in a mirror. Anyone have a translation that uses that little phrase? Hands up, crowd participation. A few of us. Excellent. It's there, all right? I don't know why it gets dropped in the ESV. Probably because it's a confusing little thing. Because then the question is, okay, when I look at a mirror, what I see is me. And and you hear what Paul's just said. He said, you know, we look at, we we behold his glory as in a mirror and are changed. It's like, that's a, I'm not sure if I'm the only one. That's a fairly funny image. It's like, all right, so... So Paul, what you're saying is like, I'm changed when I see the glory of Jesus, like when I look at myself in the mirror. So what is it, what is it that's happening? See, our problem is we all have mirrors and they're all over the place, right? So when you look in a mirror, you're used to seeing you and you're probably like fixing your hair, kind of going, what is happening? Imagine 2,000 years ago. Imagine you almost never saw a mirror. Imagine, actually, you could probably go through your whole life and never have seen one. Can you imagine the day you saw one? And there you were in a mirror. What happens in that moment? I think you just sort of stand, like, amazed, contemplating the image. See, that's what Paul's getting at. It's not you. It's not about oh, I look in the mirror and I see me, and that's what Paul's getting. No, no, he's talking about the action of looking in a mirror, what takes place when you would look in a mirror, when it was such a a strange, unusual phenomenon. That feeling that you had when you saw you for the first time, you just sort of stood there looking, contemplating, considering what was staring back. Paul says, that's what I want you to do with Jesus. I want you to just contemplate him and stare at him and behold him and never stop and just be amazed by what you're seeing like the first time you looked in a mirror that feeling have that with Jesus Paul tells us and when you do the spirit of God will transform you now this can start to sound very very passive 
all right? Because we've talked about, you know, Jesus back in John 17. By the way, that's a prayer, right? So when he says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. It's interesting. We understand that God's word is going to do this. I'll get there in just a moment. But understand, that was a prayer. He's asking God to do it. And all through these passages, the, the active person is God. You catch that? Jesus saying, Father, would you sanctify them? Would you change them? Paul is talking about the fact that it's the Lord who does this, the Spirit who does this. Over in Romans, you get the same thing. This is God who does this work. You, you look at a place like uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We love that one, right? That God works all things together for the good of those. Never leave off 29. What is the good? The good is conform to the image of the Son. In other words, God is working to conform you to be like Jesus. All right, so this is God's work, so what's my part? Maybe I just sit back. It's like, God, it's your job, and if it's not happening, it's not my responsibility. No. No, that's not what you want to do. You want to take that thought that this is God's work, and you want to take his clear instruction, which is we're sanctified through his word, and then you want to take God at his word and come to your Bible and faithfully and regularly read it with this prayer. God, would you allow me to hear and see things that I've never heard and seen before? Like when I open this and I read about Jesus, I don't want to just gain information. I want to gain wonder at who he is. I don't want to just see him and not see him or hear him and not really hear. I want to be like those people who, oh, they were changed because they actually saw and heard They realized his glory and were changed by it. And Emmanuel, that's what we want to be as we follow Jesus Christ. A group of people who are wonderfully transformed. This is good, good news that God's willing and desiring to do this in our lives. And so I want to pray for you. And then we're going to wrap up this study in the Gospel of John. Next week we're jumping into the book of Daniel. And wow, that's going to be fun. So let's pray together and the team's going to come and lead us. Father, we thank you.